Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. I am so glad that you could tune in today. We have a really important topic to discuss, and we are uh, joined by someone who is so well qualified to help us learn more about our legal rights as it uh, pertains to PFAS in our drinking water. More and more of us are beginning to become aware that PFAS is an issue. We may not understand the issue fully, and we may not understand where it's found and what it is, but we're going to dig into that today. But we're joined by environmental lawyer Dave McKay. He's a partner of Merrick O'Connell Attorneys at Law. And we're going to be talking about some of the the rights that we have, legal rights that we have as it pertains to our exposure to PFAS. And I'm thrilled to bring him on. Dave, welcome to Go Green Radio. Thanks so much for taking time to join us. Hello, Jill. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to join you. And this is a a fascinating, interesting, and rapidly developing issue. Um, So happy to talk to you about it. Well, thanks so much, Dave. So let's begin at the beginning and have you explain to us what PFAS is. Sure. So PFAS is an acronym, P-F-A-S, and it refers to per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances. Uh, Much easier to use the acronym, so that's what I'm going to do. They are a family of over 2,000, perhaps as many as 5,000 man-made chemicals. They're used in a variety of different industries around the world, including in the United States, uh, as far back as the 1940s. Um, They are one of what you may have heard referred to and your listeners as emerging contaminants. So these are pollutants that have been detected in groundwater, in soil samples, and in um, living organisms, including human beings, that are believed to cause ecological or human health impacts. Um, And they're considered emerging because they're typically not regulated under our current environmental laws. Um, So PFAS were used in a wide variety of products over the years, um, primarily for their stain resistance, water resistance, and for their non-stick qualities. So you've seen them in non-stick pots and pans. They've been used in everything from firefighting foams, food packaging, outdoor clothing, carpets, leather goods, ski waxes, and, and many more. And so it's the it's the stain and water resistance and non-stick properties that make them so useful. Um, that's also what's made them sort of so prevalent in the environment. Mm-hmm. Two of the biggest ones are PFOA and PFOS, PFOS. Um, they've been used extensively um, and probably the most studied of the PFOS chemicals. And you've probably also heard them referred to as forever chemicals, which is Mm -hmm. one of the reasons that we're so concerned about them because they're very persistent in the environment um, and also in the human body, meaning they don't break down um, Mm -hmm. and they can accumulate over time. Absolutely. And and with that, my next question is pretty simple. What are the human health risks that are associated with all of this PFAS, not just exposure, but as you mentioned, the buildup, the accumulation of these forever chemicals in our bodies? 
So this is an area that's still being studied actively, um, and there's a lot that we still don't know. But so far, the studies suggest that there's a wide range of health risks associated with different forms of PFOS exposure. So they can include things like an increased risk of certain types of cancer, including um, kidney and testicular cancer, thyroid disruption, and impacts to the immune system. So they're seeing um, impacts on antibody production and immunity, um, risks to reproductive organs and tissues. They're seeing fetal development effects, so things like uh, low birth weight, um, accelerated puberty, skeletal variations, liver damage, and also other um, widespread effects and things that aren't completely explained, but things like elevated cholesterol levels as a result of PFOS exposure. So in short, there's, um, there seems to be a developing but well-documented risk uh, to human health and certainly plenty of cause for concern with these, with these chemicals. You know, you mentioned well-documented, and that's one of the things that actually I've heard anecdotally, you know, from people who have found out there's PFAS in their drinking water, and they'll say, well, my kids and I have been drinking the tap water for years, and we're fine. How can we be so sure that these health risks exist and, and can be linked to PFAS, and, and how was that information studied? How, how can we uh, have some reasonable degree of certainty that these health risks are associated with PFAS exposure? Yeah, so there's no, there's no doubt that there's lingering uncertainty and that the science is still developing. There's plenty of things that we're still learning. Um, but these concerns go back to really the early 2000s, I think, with regard to PFAS, their environmental persistence, how they stay in the environment, and also the risks associated with bioaccumulation of PFAS. Um, but the existing research and the data um, links PFOS to a variety of different health risks. Now, now those risks can, can vary depending on um, your environment, the manner of the exposure. So, for example, are you getting it um, orally? Are you ingesting it from drinking water, from food? Is it being inhaled? Is it dermal contact, contact through the skin? Um, the risks also vary depending on um, the, the magnitude of the exposure. So things like your occupation, are you working in a, in a workplace that has, um, that uses PFOS regularly? And of course, your living conditions. Do you live near one of those facilities where PFOS might be in the soil and groundwater? Um, also, your wells. Are you on a private drinking well or a public uh, water system that has PFOS in it? Um, oral exposure, oral ingestion is thought to be the primary manner in which people are, are being exposed to um, PFOS. Some of the research, just as recently as May, the EPA's Office of Research and Development issued a report. They were studying there um, one PFOS chemical in particular called PFBS. Um, the report's interesting because it, it notes that there is a small number of human studies, um, but they also uh, noted a statistically significant association of PFBS exposure with asthma and increased cholesterol levels. 
They also no- noted um, animal studies that have identified thyroid developmental and kidney effects from repeated exposures to PFBS. Um, in addition to studies like that, your listeners may also be familiar, and you may be familiar with the film Dark Waters. Um, Dark Waters uh, is a very interesting story. It tells the story of a personal injury lawsuit that was brought against DuPont on behalf of the residents of Parkersburg, West Virginia. Um, And as part of the settlement of that case, one of the very interesting things from a legal perspective is that as part of the settlement, they agreed to establish an independent science panel, a three-panel group of experts to investigate the links between PFOA, which was the PFOS chemical at issue in that case, and exposure to human health, or excuse me, the, um, uh, the, the effects on human health. You may have heard that referred to as the C8 panel, C8 being another name for PFOA. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but that panel concluded that there were probable links between PFOA exposure and things like kidney and testicular cancer, ulcerative colitis, thyroid disease, pregnancy-induced hypertension, high cholesterol, like I mentioned before. And this was a study that involved blood samples from over 69,000 residents. So there is a considerable amount of data out there. There's certainly, I think, bottom line, plenty that we don't know. But a lot of the evidence that we have so far suggests that um, PFOS substances, even in very low quantities, we're talking you know, parts per trillion, are damaging to human health. Well, and it's good to know where this information emanates from, because I think that a lot of people need to understand that even if they've been drinking, you know, water that has PFAS in it and they're currently fine, that's not necessarily the best barometer for determining whether or not this is something that's that's harmful. How pervasive is the PFAS problem in the U.S., Dave? I mean, particularly when it comes to PFAS in our drinking water. Jill, so this is an, another area where uh, that's developing rapidly, and I think we're getting more and new information all the time. The problem appears quite pervasive. Um, it's been alleged in some cases that 99% of Americans have PFOS in one form or another in their bodies. I've heard estimates that up to 200 million Americans have PFOS-contaminated drinking water. I think the... Um, the, the likelihood of PFOS contamination is going to vary depending on the local conditions and where you live, um, including the, the, the region that you live in. So areas that, have, um, that are more arid um, can have higher PFOS concentrations just because the groundwater and the surface water that, um, that is being drawn upon for drinking water can be more concentrated. Um, in Massachusetts, where I live, they have, and, and Massachusetts is probably one of the states that has been um, one of the leaders in studying PFOS in drinking water and addressing that from a regulatory perspective. Um, but even in Massachusetts, so we have about 1,600 public water systems in Massachusetts. Less than 600 of them so far have been tested for PFOS. So that's less than 40%. Um, of those, about 10% are showing PFOS um, uh, concentrations above our 
MCL, our maximum uh, contaminant level of 20 parts per trillion. So, mm-hmm. you know, how you view that, I guess, depends on, like many things, where you're sitting. Um, encouraging for those 90% of folks whose public water system doesn't have um, uh, PFAS over that level. Um, but, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this as we go on, real challenges for the other 10%. And Absolutely. That's just the public. That's just the public water systems, right? So a right. lot of folks, particularly in suburban or rural communities, are on private water systems. You know, they have their own drinking mm-hmm. well. Um, here in Massachusetts, we have begun a sampling program for that. We've got about um, fifteen hundred homeowners in mm-hmm. about twenty percent of our communities that have been tested so far. Um, that's awesome, and about thirty-five. Thirty-five percent of them have PFOS in one form or another. Five percent wow. of them over the over the MCL limit. So it's wow. you know a fairly widespread problem, and certainly is some attention. Yes, and and we have so much more to talk about with this. We're just beginning to scratch the surface. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. I am so glad you're with us today. Important topic we're covering. And if you've just joined us, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Dave McKay, and he's a partner at Merrick O'Connell Attorneys at Law. We're talking about PFAS. Uh, We're talking about it being in our drinking water. But most importantly, what we're going to get to is... What are our legal rights? If we've got PFAS in our drinking water, what rights do we have? And he's going to help us get to that, but we're building up to that. Um, Dave, you know, we're hearing about PFAS in other items besides drinking water and a multitude of ways that we can be exposed to PFAS. Um, But why is it so important to focus on PFAS in our drinking water? Yeah, I think because what we have found so far is that drinking water is the primary exposure pathway for folks. Um, So it's being ingested. There are certainly other ways, um, dermal, um, through the skin, um, inhaled and things of that nature, but it's really drinking water that seems to be the primary method by which people are being exposed to PFOS. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So let me ask you this. Is it possible to remove PFAS from drinking water at the utility scale? Or do people have to try to remove it in their own homes and schools and workplaces? The good news is that there are technologies that can address PFAS contamination, and it can be done at the utility scale. Um, So there are effective treatment methods, both, both at the utility level um, and in some cases in smaller settings like homes, offices, and businesses and things of that nature. Um, Some of the technologies are granular activated carbon. So think of what you might, you know, the canister filtration that you might have in your own home um, that is often granular activated carbon. And so things like PFOS will stick to the little bits of carbon as the water passes through it. Another variation of that is powder activated carbon. So again, same idea as the water passes through the carbon, the, um, the PFOS attaches to it and is filtered out of the water. You may have also heard of ion exchange resins, which are small beads that are made of hydrocarbons that work kind of like magnets to attract and and pull the PFOS out of uh, the water. And then one of the most sophisticated um, and not surprisingly expensive methods is uh, nanofiltration or reverse osmosis systems. And so this is a process where the water is pushed through a membrane that has very small pores in it. And the membrane acts like a wall that stops the chemicals and particles from uh, passing into drinking water. These kind of systems, the nanofiltration and reverse osmosis, are some of the most effective. Um, The efficacy of these various systems, carbon, resin, reverse osmosis, and so forth, uh, depends on the type of PFOS. So that's um, important to note. And so what water systems are facing is trying to match up the type of PFOS that they are finding in their water with the best technology to remove that in light of the costs. Um, and for some types of PFOS, like I mentioned before, this can also be done at the, at the home filtration system. Um, mm-hmm. But it is important for folks that are going to be relying upon that to make sure that they've got a system that um, is certified by an independent testing group such as the Water Quality Association or the CSA group um, Mm -hmm. to remove the kind of PFOS that they might have in their water. 
You know, one of the things that's so confusing to a lot of people is that there seem to be different levels in different areas um, in terms of how much PFAS is allowed to be in our drinking water. Do all states have the same legal framework for defining how much PFAS is allowed to be in our drinking water? Well, there aren't. Uh, a ton of issues in the law that have a straightforward yes or no answer, but this is one of them. <laughs> and and the, the short answer is no. All states don't have the same um, framework and um, uh, and levels for addressing PFOS. So I'll, I'll kind of start at the top because this sort of sets the stage for how this is regulated okay. in drinking water. So. At the federal level, the EPA has set a health advisory of 70 parts per trillion for two particular um, PFOS contaminants combined. So it's PFOA and PFOS, PFOS. Um, And EPA's health advisory is 70 parts per trillion. But there's no national level MCL for drinking water under the Federal Safe Drinking Water Act for PFOS, like there is for many other contaminants. Um, And similarly, at the state level, it really varies. So we have about a half a dozen states. My home state of Massachusetts is one of them that have an MCL for PFOS. Um, So it's Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, Michigan, New York, and New Jersey, I think, that have an MCL so far. But even there, the approach varies. Um, So in most of them, they have, what they've done is they set a specific MCL for each particular type, usually four or five different PFOS chemicals. And so they'll set a specific level for each one of those. Um, Others, like Massachusetts and Vermont, have set an MCL for a larger um, PFOS group in total. So... For example, what they'll do and what we've done in Massachusetts is we have an MCL of 20 parts per trillion for the sum of six different PFOS chemicals. So you can have zero um, concentration of five of those chemicals, but if you have one of them that's over 20 in that list of six, then, 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 then you have exceeded the MCL. And you can also do that by a combination of them. Um, so, so that's the standard that's been uh, adopted in, in those two states. There are five mm-hmm. other states that have proposed MCL standards, um, and a number of states, that probably close to a dozen, I think there's 10 of them that um, have set up notification requirements, so mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily require the public water system to remediate um, PFOS, but does require them to notify their customers when they've um, detected PFOS. But mm-hmm. in most places, they follow the EPA approach by default, which is um, they don't have a an MCL per se yet. Mm-hmm. And in the states that have set MCLs, um, who is responsible for removing the PFAS from the water if the local water supply tests higher than the maximum contamination level. Who, who bears that responsibility? Yeah, the folks on the front line are the public water supplier, um, which, you know, I think if there's a policy failing in all of this and in, in how it's been approached in most places is that it's really kind of made the 
the public water supplier um, deal with the issue and figure out how it gets paid for uh, and so forth. And, you know, the ability of the public water system to recover those costs also varies from state to state. So those are the folks um, on the front line, so to speak, of dealing with PFAS contamination at a sort of a policy level. Talk to us a little bit about those financial costs. I mean, what are we looking at when we talk about the cost of treating drinking water to remove PFAS contamination? Jill, the costs are substantial, and I think it's important to understand them in the context of what most of these water systems are dealing with. So, you know, in many cases, you've got a public water system that's already being challenged by aging infrastructure, old pipes, old pump stations, things of that nature. So to add something on top of it for PFAS remediation is a huge expense. And basically what you're talking about is a large filtration system, right? So we, we, we mentioned earlier the, you know, the, the, the home um, carbon canister filters that you have. You're, you're basically, from a utility scale, you're talking about doing that on a much larger level to handle millions of gallons per day. The cost of that varies depending on the technology used and the size of the system. So you're talking anywhere from basically three to $120 million, depending on the size and type. So I was speaking with one uh, municipal client not too long ago, and they were looking at the possibility of an $8 million carbon filtration system. There have been other systems in Massachusetts that have had um, filtration systems in the range of 3 to $5 million dollars. Um, New Jersey in Middlesex is building a $30 million system, um, and one of the most expensive that I've read about is in North Carolina. They're building a large reverse osmosis system, which, again, is one of those most sophisticated ones and does the best job for a wide variety of PFOS contaminants, um, but that's a $120 million system. So huge costs. Um, Wow. You know, around $2 per gallon to treat the water, and that's just the capital costs. Wow. The operation and maintenance costs, O&M, that you know you might hear referred to, sure. um, is hundreds of thousands of dollars per year. So for a water system, particularly, you know, one of these smaller public water systems in a small town, this is a huge expense. How are local water agencies going to pay for PFAS treatment? I mean, what options do they have to cover that cost? Yeah, it's the toughest part of it. And that's kind of the policy issue that I mentioned before in that in a lot of places, the public water systems are, you know, there are resources available to help them, but not a lot of monetary uh, resources. So the options vary, but they're, they're not ideal. Um, the primary option in most places is to bond or finance the expense, and mm-hmm. they pass that along to their ratepayers, um, like any other capital expense for a water system. Mm-hmm. Um, another option is to try and find federal or state funding. Mm-hmm. This is difficult, but I think the good news is that that, that outlook is improving, um, in part because of the change in administration, um, mm-hmm. but also... And, and change administration in Washington, but I think also kind of a growing awareness of PFOS issues. In Massachusetts, uh, last year they allocated $8.4 million, which is nowhere near enough, but at mm-hmm. least it's a start. 
for start. Uh, public water system treatment and design for PFOS issues. Absolutely. We also have a clean water trust um, that provides loans to address these issues. So we need more, but help is on the way. That's good news. Um, that is that, good news. And I think, you know, and I definitely want to get into this um, after our next commercial break, um, because this is where we pivot in the show, where we start to talk about solutions and what's next. So don't go away, folks. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but we'll be right back with more Go Green Radio. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you're just joining us, let me take a moment to catch you up. Our guest today is Dave McKay. He's an environmental attorney and partner of Merrick O'Connell Attorneys at Law. And we're about to get into the meat and potatoes of this episode of Go Green Radio and talk about the legal rights associated with um, those of us who have PFAS in our water supply. So I want to start with, you know, we just finished the last segment talking about the extremely high cost of treating PFAS and, and that local water agencies right now are, are bearing the brunt of those costs and may have to um, pass those costs along to their ratepayers. What legal rights do water local water agencies have to recoup the cost of PFAS contamination treatment? And what must they do in order to identify and seek damages from the source of the contamination? 
Absolutely, Jill. So before the break, we were talking right about what options uh, these water systems have and suing or taking some other type of legal action against responsible parties for the PFAS contamination um, is certainly one of those options. Now, that's going to depend on the state, and some states will have better and greater options for public water systems than others. The biggest challenge, not surprisingly, is identifying the source, um, who's responsible for the contamination. Now, in some places, that's going to be fairly obvious, so a community may have uh, an airport or a military base, a landfill, a firefighting academy, some sort of facility like that, um, that is a known PFAS user or manufacturer, something like that, that will be um, an, an, an obvious source. Other times, there isn't an obvious source, though. So you may have a situation where there is one industrial source among many industrial potential industrial uh, facilities in an area, and the, the, the water system or the municipality won't know which. Um, and then there are plenty of examples where the source is just unknown. Um, and if it's unknown, the municipality or the water system can look to commission an engineering study to investigate and identify potential sources. There are environmental professionals that you know, do that kind of investigation and research for a, a living. But I have to say it's a real challenge because in many ways PFOS were so widely used um, and everywhere that a primary source, if there is one, can be tough to pin down. So what you've seen in the litigation as it's been developing over time is because of that difficulty, many are targeting the, pri the primary manufacturers of PFOS. They're going to sort of the top of the supply chain, looking at companies like DuPont and 3M for, um, uh, to pay for these kinds of damages. Mm -hmm. um, an, an important consideration for these water systems is whether to go it alone or to join in a group or class of plaintiffs, and there can mm -hmm. be advantages or disadvantages of each, you know, depending on the circumstances for that particular community. Um, but uh, in terms of legal rights and, and what, uh, what they can do, there, uh, in many states, will have a hazardous waste cleanup statute that can provide mm. relief. Um, again, that's really going to vary on a state-by-state -state level, particularly for um, and whether the state has adopted PFAS as a, um, as a contaminant under those particular laws and regulations. So mm -hmm. think of these laws as like Superfund, the, the federal surplus statute at but at the state level. So these are laws that assign uh, liability and responsibility for the cleanup of soil and groundwater contamination. Little, just bit of a quick background, you know, these were groundbreaking statutes at their time, um, and one of the reasons why they are so powerful is because they assign liability strictly. It's not based on fault. So a responsible party that um, put... PFAS into the environment and that, that got into groundwater can have followed every law and regulation at the time, but still be liable under these hazardous waste cleanup statutes mm -hmm. because liability is based essentially on status. So if you were the owner or the operator of the site, if you're the arranger, 
the transporter or you otherwise cause the contamination, including PFAS, if it's on the list in your state, um, you are responsible for cleaning it up. So it's kind of a blunt instrument from a legal standpoint and perhaps unfair in some ways, but legislators essentially made a policy compromise, right? They're balancing Mm -hmm. the need for cleaning up these sites, cleaning up this kind of contamination with assigning liability to the folks who are in a best position to kind of shoulder the expense um, and mitigate the risk. So Mm -hmm. these statutes are very important legal tools for um, public water suppliers, water agencies, and municipalities to recover um, PFAS-related damages again, depending on this, on this uh, state that they're in. Um, they're also good because most of the time they have an attorney's fees provision. So it helps the, the water system offset that part of the cost as well. In, well, if you're I'm in just place, kind of wondering, too, sure. I mean, if, if you're in a uh, situation where, I mean, we know it takes time to build a PFAS treatment plant if a, a local water agency is going to do that. If, if they have to provide bottled water to their residents in the interim between, you know, the present day and when the PFAS treatment is um, instituted, do they have any legal rights to recoup that cost? Would that Could that be included in, in some of this um, ability to recoup the cost of PFAS mitigation? Yes, yes. Okay. So whether you're proceeding under a statutory claim, like some of the statutes that I was talking about before, or more traditional, which is what's ha- tort-based claims, which is what's happening in a lot of places um, where uh, they don't have these particular types of statutes, nuisance claims, trespass claims, those can be an element of the damages that, um, uh, that can be recovered. Okay, good to know. And I, I kind of want to pivot to the individual um, and, and individual legal rights. In the first segment of the show, we talked about the human health risks that are associated with PFAS. If an individual lives in a community where PFAS is in the drinking water and that person develops one or more of these health problems that we defined, what is the process of proving that that health problem is connected to ingesting the contaminated tap water. We've talked about challenges, right, in multiple different (laughs) contexts in dealing with PFAS, and no doubt from a a private plaintiff perspective or even um, one who's in a class of plaintiffs, this is the most challenging part of the exercise, and it becomes a battle of the experts, right? So we're dealing with an emerging contaminant, an emerging body of literature that's drawing these, um, uh, that, that's identifying these health, health risks and whether PFAS causes them. Um, and so that's a, that, that's a difficult piece of the case. And PFAS is unusual because a lot of, ca- a lot of contaminants have sort of signature illnesses that they cause. PFAS has, seems to have a wide variety of human health effects, and so mm-hmm. that can make it more challenging from a uh, from a from a, a causation and approving a claim standpoint for mm-hmm. for a plaintiff. You know, I think first and most importantly for these folks is to the first thing that they should do is get medical attention and talk to their doctor. Um, you know, take care of yourself and your health should be the number one concern. If you live in a place that has known PFOS contamination, particularly if there's been past litigation involving PFOS, 
you may find that there's a medical monitoring program uh, mm-hmm. in your area for, um, uh, for suspected um, PFOS health problems. And so those kinds of programs can help identify and assist, assist folks um, with health problems that may be caused by PFOS exposure. Um, the other thing, and this advice will not surprise you, is that mm-hmm. folks who think that they have PFOS-related illnesses need to talk to a lawyer. You know, there are folks that are specializing, plaintiff's lawyers who are specializing in these t- kinds of cases, and there are more and more lawyers looking at these issues all the time. Um, causation, certainly the biggest challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, was the illness caused by PFOS or by some, something else? Um, but a lawyer who has some experience handling these kinds of cases will have the resources that they can draw upon to, to help someone answer that question. Mm-hmm. And, and are there people who are suing their local government if they think their illness is connected to PFAS in their drinking water? Is that um, something that's being done? Is that something that people can do? It, it is something that's being done. Um, the ability to do that varies widely from one state to another. So generally, local governments have some level of sovereign immunity, meaning they can't be sued by residents for tort-type claims. Mm-hmm. However, most places also have some form of a, of a waiver of that liability, a, a, a statutory um, tort claims act that provide to varying degrees um, the ability for uh, folks to bring suit uh, to file claims against a, a state or local government. Again, the scope of that varies widely, and there are specific procedural requirements that apply. So folks need to definitely get local legal advice um, mm-hmm. to do that. Um, but, but that is a possibility, but definitely an example where if folks want to pursue those claims and look into those claims, they need to, um, they need to get local legal advice because the, that sovereign immunity and, and the, the scope of that liability and the ability to bring those claims varies widely. Do you know of any cases where the families of people who have died as a result of suspected PFAS-related health you know, conditions that, where they have legal recourse? Is that happening or, uh, or not so much? So, so those kinds of cases are subject to the same limitations and considerations that we've been talking about for other mm-hmm. types of personal injury cases. Mm-hmm. So this is an example where, you know, the rights vary depending on the state and the circumstances. Generally, um, a plaintiff will need to show similar things, that battle of the experts showing that mm-hmm. um, the, the death was caused by PFOS is going to be a major issue uh, in that case. And then again, if it's a claim that's being brought against a state or local government or a, a, a public water supplier, there are special requirements and issues that need to be addressed in that context as well. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thanks for that, Dave. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have a lot more to talk about. So don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26 percent, 43 percent or 14 percent? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. And thanks to our guest, Dave McKay, for talking to us about some of the legal issues and some of our legal rights around PFAS in our drinking water in particular. We know that PFAS is found in a number of different applications and it's all around us, pretty ubiquitous actually, but um, ingesting it in our drinking water is pretty particularly problematic because, as he mentioned in the first segment, uh, this is a chemical that does not break down. It doesn't pass through us once we once we consume it. Um, it is bioaccumulative, meaning that if you're a little kid who lasts, you know, and, and lives to be 95 years old, uh, the more you ingest PFAS, the more it builds up in your body and the greater chance you have of um, developing some of these health risks that are associated with PFAS. You know, Dave has talked to us about how various states have developed their own maximum contamination uh, levels for PFAS, but there's still an absence of that at the federal government level. Dave, I want you to tell us what you think. Do you expect the federal government to set nationwide maximum contamination levels for PFAS in the drinking water? I mean, if they did, how might that change the legal landscape for lawsuits uh, pertaining to PFAS in water supplies? Absolutely. I expect that the EPA will set an MCL. That process is already underway. Mm -hmm. Um, We've seen it, and EPA has uh, the ability now, I think, to build off of what's happened at the state level, right? So our 50 Mm -hmm. little laboratories of democracy, (laughs) um, many of them have, um, have established MCLs for um, for PFOS, and the states have advantages in, in um, doing this kind of thing. They can be a lot more nimble than at the federal level, which, of course, is a much bigger ship to steer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in February of 2019, EPA began that process to include PFOA and PFOS, PFOS, two of the most commonly used PFOS contaminants as hazardous substances, And then in February of last year, um, the EPA announced proposed uh, regulatory determinations to regulate PFOS and PFOA in drinking water. And now that the Biden administration is in office, um, I expect that's going to accelerate considerably. So the campaign uh, identified PFOS as their number two environmental concern after only climate change. Um, 
So no doubt this is top of the list for or close to top of the list for um, Biden's EPA. And my best guess is before 2022 closes out, you'll have an MCL for, uh, for PFAS from the EPA. Oh, that's pretty encouraging. How would that change the landscape, you know, for lawsuits pertaining to PFAS? How would it differ from a state-by-state legal landscape for these kinds of lawsuits? Yeah, it, it, it's going to be a bit of a game changer because what it really does, you know, earlier we had been talking about the state statutes for um, hazardous waste site cleanup, which is one of the tools that water systems can use to um, to recover the costs of PFAS remediation from drinking water. What an MCL um, and also a, a reportable quantity in, in the Superfund context will do once EPA sets that is kind of normalize things. Um, and so in doing that, PFAS will be treated like any other contaminant. Um, and that's been the challenge in so many places in dealing with PFAS is that it's been in kind of this, um, uh, limbo world where there isn't a clear established regulatory standard for them. So once EPA does that, if it establishes an MCL, if it establishes an RQ, from a federal legal standpoint, um, it would be. It'll normalize the treatment of PFAS as a contaminant just like other contaminants. Um, that's what happened here in Massachusetts. Um, an MCL was set under the state drinking water regulations as well as um, uh, in Massachusetts, it's the reportable concentration as opposed to reportable quantity, um, but that was done under the hazardous waste cleanup regulations. So at the federal level, what that'll mean, if they, if they do that for PFOS, it'll create Superfund liability for PFOS contamination. Um, it'll create for these public water systems, Safe Drinking Water Act responsibility to, to take action if they detect PFOS in drinking water. It'll enhance the liability under other federal statutes, things like the, excuse me, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. So I think the, the way to look at this is expect a domino effect. Um, once the EPA kind of normalizes PFOS regulation as a contaminant, other states are going to follow, um, and you're going to see PFOS getting treated just like other contaminants. Well, I'm looking forward to that. At the same time, <laughs> my my heart goes out to, um, you know, the, the the leadership, both staff and elected officials at local water agencies, you know, who got involved in this because, you know, they wanted to to treat water, make sure it was clean and all of that. And then PFAS comes along and, you know, creates a whole new budget line item that's overwhelming. Um in your mind, what should what are the top three or four actions that local water agencies that have PFAS contamination, what should they be doing? What action should they be taking in the short term to protect them from legal action? Yeah, Jill, you're you're absolutely right. My heart goes out to these folks because they are sort of um, you know, obviously folks who have been personally injured by this stuff. Um, they deserve all of our help and, and sympathy from a sort of a regulatory standpoint of trying to protect people. It's these water systems that are really on the front line. So my advice to them is, you know, get good advice and don't go it alone. Um, work with your state agency that oversees 
public drinking water. Uh, in many places, that's going to be your Department of Environmental Protection or, or an agency like that that oversees drinking water. These agencies have a lot of outstanding folks. They, you know, they gravitate towards those agencies because they care about these issues. And so they're helping and trying to help small water systems and small communities address PFOS problems. They know the issues and they can often help. So, for example, things like notification, how to explain PFOS issues to their residents. Um, your environmental agency can help public water systems uh, deal with that. You know, they won't know and they won't have all the answers, but it's a really good place to start. Um, second is to work with your engineers and your experts. You know, most public water systems, they're, you know, pretty accustomed to dealing with testing regimens and testing protocols, contaminants and things of that nature for how to deal with contaminants. So if you've got um, your team of engineers and experts that are recommending that you take particular action related to PFOS, you should take that action. Um, you should also talk to somebody like me. Um, make sure that you get good legal counsel. Um, you know, in a lot of communities, they have uh, municipal counsel who are outstanding lawyers in their own right, but, you know, they tend to deal with and see the day-to-day -day issues that municipalities face, so things like, you know, public records, open meeting, laws, conflicts of interest, public procurement, you know, they're dealing with a lot of those issues on a day-to-day -day mm -hmm. basis. PFAS, not so much. So um, getting, getting specialized help um, is important. And then lastly, be transparent. Um, nothing is more troubling than um, agencies that aren't upfront and nothing sort of breeds concern um, from the public than not telling folks what you know. And again, there are resources that can help. Yeah. And in the minute or so that we have left, what's your advice to everyday Americans who live in areas where PFAS contamination is present in their water? What can they do to protect their rights? Yeah. You know, the biggest challenge, unfortunately, is that so many folks won't know. You know, mm -hmm. even in my state, most public water systems and private water supplies have not been tested. Um, if you know you have an issue, ask questions, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you're on a public water system, are they testing? If not, why not? Um, if it's been detected, what is your public water system doing about it? Um, and if you're on a private system, does, is your state running a testing program? Can you get your system tested? And if so, you know, what are, what are they finding or what are you finding? Um, it's worth keeping tabs on what's happening in your local area, particularly if you're Absolutely. learning about PFAS contaminations. And then lastly, if you think you've been harmed, um, talk to a lawyer, get some help. Thank you, Dave. Great advice. You know, uh, there's a lot of things we can live without. You know, we can live without uh, fast food packaging that has PFAS in it. We could live without uh, Teflon coated pots and pans, but we cannot live without clean drinking water. And so uh, I urge all of you, all of our listeners to find out what's going on in your area um, and, and get involved in this. It's, it's, a, it's a basic human need to have clean drinking water uh, that doesn't harm your health. Thank you as always uh, to all of you who tuned in. We are going to be here same place, same time next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.
you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.